This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 85. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 85 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, and Universal Audio. Ah, welcome again to another show, doing another late-at-night monologue. So I've got the dog, the kids, and the wife all asleep. It's about 11.30 at night, and I've got all the doors shut, fans are going, everybody's kind of, you know deep in dreamland. And I'm in here talking into a microphone. How about that? Um, so yeah, welcome again. Uh, I do have a great guest on today. I have on Mr. Jeremy Goody, a Grammy-nominated engineer who is the owner of Megasonic Recording in Oakland, California. Uh, he's got a lovely studio that uh, I paid a visit to, uh, designed by Chris Polonis and uh, built by last WCA guest, Brian Hood. So yeah, comes full circle, doesn't it? So yeah, Jeremy Goody coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. <laughs> Tell you, when you do these things late at night, your voice is just a little more gravelly and you talk a little quieter because you just don't know how loud you're being, really, because I've got headphones on. So there it is. Uh, and you know, when I went over to uh, Jeremy's place, he turned me on, I got to tell you about this. this, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, uh, Disc Tracker. Uh, it's a shareware program. It takes a inventory of your drives, kind of like what Spotlight does, but it takes a snapshot and then creates a little database that you can search, even though the drive may not be hooked up to the computer. So let's say, uh, you know, a client uh, emails me and says, hey, do you have the tunes we did from whatever, I don't know, eons ago? Uh, then what you could do then is just go to the little database and look for the tune. You just type it into the search field and boom, you find out which drive it's on. And if you have it, of course, and, uh, I think it's, I think it's 30 bucks. I don't know if the copy I'm running off of is just kind of based on the honor system or something. I, I've only operated it like a two, like two or three times so far. And it's only asked me for money one time. Anyways, I'm going to pay the 30 bucks. I think it's, it's a great program. And uh, yeah, check it out. I'll, uh, I'll put a link on um, the WCA page just below Jeremy's bio information uh, when you're checking this out. So be sure and check that out. Uh, what else is going on? Kind of going through these growing pains of the show. You know, as we approach 100 and we're now over 6,000 likes on Facebook, which I totally love and I appreciate greatly. But Here's some of the growing pains that we're going through. Number one, we're starting to get some spam on the uh, Facebook page, which uh, between me and Facebook, we seem to be keeping it at bay. Um, so that's interesting. <laughs> People like posting their own um, musical things like, hey, check my thing out. And, you know, I get it, but that's kind of a douchey thing to do. You know, I don't go and post my thing on somebody else's site. I think that's just, that's such a douchebag move. Anyway, so I ban those people that do that. But here's the other thing. The, the other growing pain is this, is that, and I, and I, and I want to, you know, say this with great respect to uh, my engineering brothers and sisters out there. If you want to be on the show, don't ask to be on the show. It's, you know, I, I, I don't know why I just, it just doesn't seem to work for me. Um, I really 
thrive off of referrals. You know, like if I'm in an interview with somebody and they say, oh, you know what, you should talk to, for example, Brian Hood told me, oh, you know what, you should talk to Jeremy Goody. And I said, Jeremy Goody, wait a minute. He and I have been chatting on Facebook. Uh, yeah, I know, uh, I know the name, didn't know the face, didn't know about Megasonic. So that, that was a great example of how that worked. And uh, some of the other past guests, uh, John Cunaberti, for example, uh, John uh, was the one that uh, referred Justin Phelps to me. So the whole referral thing and making suggestions, and which a lot of you do, and I really appreciate that. You'll send me suggestions over email and when I'm looking for a guest, I go to those lists. I refer to them. Uh, so yeah, keep that coming. That's super cool. That's the way it seems to work best. I always, um, I think I mentioned this before. This is kind of a Larry Crane inspired idea. Um, I always remember Larry talking about people like asking him to be in tape op. And he was like, yeah, I just don't do that. That's just not the way we work. And, and I kind of feel the same way. So there it is. I'll just put it out there. If there's somebody that you really want to have on the show, you really think would be good for the show, obviously drop me a line. You can send me an email at matt at workingclassaudio.com. You could do it on the Facebook page. You could private message me there. You know, any of that. Also, uh, here's part of the other growing pain thing that I'm experiencing. Many people who I don't know are trying to friend me personally on Facebook. And I'm, you know, truly I'm honored. I, I, I appreciate the people reaching out. but. I kind of take this approach and I would encourage the same, you know, for everyone just because it kind of keeps you out of trouble with people. Um, long ago on LinkedIn, I, uh, I was accepting, you know, requests from people and friending people there as well. And then one day I got this, uh, I got this message from this guy that said, Hey, I see that, you know, so-and-so can you refer, can you introduce me? And I said, you know, I gotta be honest with you. I don't know that person. I just happened to friend them. And that's when it occurred to me. With Facebook and LinkedIn, I uh, purposely uh, just kind of honed the, the list down of people that I'm friends with to the people that I've actually met and had conversations with that I'm, uh, you know, once or twice, you know, not just in passing, but, you know, or people that I do sessions with. You know, when you do a session, you guys, you all know how that is. You get you kind of, that's like... Uh, it's, it's a bonding experience when you do a session. So that always makes sense to me. So if I haven't friended you and, you know, please don't take offense. I'm just, uh, you know, as an, as much of an extrovert as I am, I am also a semi-private person. So I generally do not uh, f respond to friend requests uh, for people that I just don't know because I just, I just don't know them. So, so there it is. Yeah, we're going, going through these growing pains and, you know, it's, it's a good thing, but it's also something that I just, I thought it would be worth addressing here. So don't mean to be a downer. Just want to make sure that I address it. So if, if some of you are out there going, you know, I sent you a friend request and request and you haven't responded. What an asshole. So that's really just the general policy that I have with that. So um, I think I mentioned last time, uh, I will be at AES this uh, uh, upcoming uh, show in LA that's happening September 29th. I will be at the Focal booth. Me and the Focal folks are working on a plan. So uh, please stop by, say hello, introduce yourself. I would uh, love to see you. And uh, and we'll have a conversation and then we'll be friends on Facebook. How about that? That'll solve that problem. 
anyways, yeah, I'll be there at uh, AES, and I'll also be uh, roaming around at the uh, Audio-Technica booth. Not sure if we're doing something there just yet, but I haven't had that conversation, so I'll just hold off. But uh, I will be at the Focal booth. Here we go, number 85. Man, it's amazing how, how fast these things go. So uh, I guess I'll quit talking, yeah. I guess let's let Jeremy do the talking. Jeremy Goody, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Uh, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for accommodating me by letting me into your wonderful studio here. Oh, thanks for having me. Been listening to them for since, like, number one. We're in Oakland. Uh, I, I love your... I play by Oakland rules. I don't put the address on the on the website. I think I love that. That's the least amount of security you can do, I think. Yeah. Don't tell them where you are unless they need to know. So this, let's talk about this building. So this building's been in your family since the 80s? 84, 85, which is about the same time I got my first synthesizer, I realized earlier today. Your family had bought this building to use as a real estate office? My mom purchased it, but both my father and two of my older brothers have worked here. My sister-in-law has worked here. We've used it for lots of different stuff over, over the years. Okay. So it's always in, been a business? It's always been a business. And before she bought it, it was a business as well. It looks like a house. It totally looks like yeah, a house. Yeah, it's really surprising when you go inside. Your neighbors are really quiet across the street. They're all dead. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we're right down the street from the cemetery, <laughs> which is, you know, perfect for me. <laughs> so this, this control room that we're in, what would you say these dimensions are? 20-something by 18-something. Okay. It's on the website. I'd have to look it up. Okay. And you got a live room. Similarly sized. And you have a, a, an ISO room next to that, a little smaller. Mm-hmm. I uh, got a lobby. Uh, There's like the airlock kind of storage zone that also has mic ties in there. Yeah. So how many square feet is this property? 1,800 maybe. Okay. A little bit less than that, 1,600. Ceilings aren't low, but they're not high. There's a truss ceiling as the design of the building, so there's nothing we could have done to raise the ceiling at all. So we worked with, you know, what's here. A lot more trapping, basically, and a lot more diffusion and stuff on the ceiling to kind of get that boundary away from you and the mics a little bit. Then you can hear just how quiet it is. I can hear the slight ringing in my ears from playing drums last night. Yours is only slight. That's good. Oh, yeah. Because mine's, yeah. It's, it's kind of faint, but I can, uh, I mean, it's very quiet in this room, and uh, I'll take some pictures and uh, as like some bonus content to to post on the website. So if you're listening and you're curious what we are, what kind of room we're in, you can see it. So, so I know your name because for a number of reasons, Brian Hood spoke very highly of you, and I love referrals. I've been getting a lot of people actually um, asking to be on the on the podcast. I, I could see why you would ask. I totally get it, and I don't. I'm not offended by that, but I. I kind of do a policy of not, not responding. It's a to little that. presumptuous to invite yourself onto a broadcast of some sort. Uh, yeah, it can be, and some people are anxious because they're trying to promote something, and and I get. Oh it. yeah, sure. And I get it, but I I like doing the referral thing. And when Brian mentioned you, I was like, that's funny. Like I talk with with Jeremy on Facebook about the show, and he has recommendations for me, and so I was like, sure, I think we should check that out, and. Um, your location was lovely because yeah, you a short right distance. The tunnel there. Yeah, it was a quick drive over here. Um, let's go back in time a bit. What's beyond like, and and I don't, I'm not trying to demean your early stories, but like beyond like you know the very typical 
upbringing of exposure to audio, do you have uh, a point in time at which it was clear to you that audio was the path? Pretty early on, really early on, actually. I think when I was a lot younger and playing music, starting fifth grade, whatever, at some point I got the idea that musician was what I wanted to do. And then the more experience I got with playing music for a living, I realized that wasn't really something I wanted to do all the time. And I figured anything having to do with sound, ultimately I'd be happy with. That was probably around eighth grade, freshman year in high school. Mm. It's like, okay, this music thing, little bit of a long shot, kind of painful to do it. But, you know, I'd already been playing with synthesizers and whatnot and sequencers on an Apple II Plus on my older brother's computer with like glass tracks. I don't know if you remember glass track. That was great. Little empty box that would turn dark if you had stuff in there. <laughs> empty box. Oh, now there's stuff in there. <laughs> I started booking time in studios in high school to do my own solo projects. And then I recorded with a couple bands I was in in high school. Um, ska band I was in recorded with Billy Anderson, one of his first ever ska projects, or probably only one at this point. Wow. I was like 16, I think, 17. Where did you, and what studio was that at? That was the one that was Ann Rice's house. The, oh, that, so that was Razor's Edge. Razor's Edge, So yeah. that was on Diviz, in, around Divisadera. On Diviz, right there, yeah. And we went there. Ann Rice of Interview with a Vampire fame. Exactly. That was a bit of trivia for that place. Wow. I didn't realize that the, the, they were one and the same. Yeah. I, I thought they were blocks from each other. So that's Not fascinating. Any. So yeah, I, you know, there and then um, through Book and Time at uh, Skyline Studios, which is still going here, Brian's place, um, I just really couldn't think about anything else. It was either skateboarding or recording or the two things that were on, and girls. These are what was on my mind. And right after high school, I went to the recording workshop out in Ohio hmm. and knew that I'm pretty much doing this. I did go to college. I started out as a music major, but I switched over to English. And the whole time in college, I was recording, basically. And I missed classes because I'd have all-night sessions, that kind of thing. Hmm. I had a teacher approach me about my drug problem he thought I had because I kept falling asleep in his class. But <laughs> it was Wednesday mornings, American Lit, 8 a.m. kind of thing. And, you know, I was sleeping through it because I'd be recording on a Tuesday night. and Regardless of whether or not you're recording American literature at... 8 a.m. is yeah. just, come on. And certain rooms, you know, if you're just in them, they're going to put you to sleep. I don't know if it's the airflow or the way that sun hits it. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, my first, my freshman year in college, I went down to San Diego and I was hanging out at the college radio station down there. On the bulletin board, there was a job audio engineer wanted. And I just come from the recording workshop. I was like, well, I'm an audio engineer. So I decided to call the guy and I went to his house. He had a home studio, an eight track reel to reel studio. He was doing um, like radio commercials for like San Diego. Go blind and shade company, that kind of stuff. And he needed a guy to edit his various takes together and splice them together and get them to the Amtrak station, run off duplicates to quarter inch reels and drive them over to Amtrak and get them on the train to deliver them to the various radio stations up and down the coast at the right time. So, you know, it goes pretty far back. I think I was the last of the classes at Recording Workshop that was taught tape editing. Because after that, they just started using DAWs and the, the reel-to-reels went out the window. When you were working with this guy, were you editing the 8-track reel-to-reel or just the quarter-inch mix down? Usually the quarter-inch. Okay. Because he'd reuse the 8-track tapes. Okay. Yeah. he just record over them once the quarter-inch was done. I got it. Okay. And then uh, I came back up here. I did, I did a year's worth of time in San Diego and realized I wasn't really feeling Southern California so much. Came back to the Bay Area, bumped into Brian from Skyline again. I was working at a video store trying to figure out. I had gear. I had gear in my parents' basement at that point in the garage. What's Brian's last name? 
Matheson. Brian Matheson. Brian Matheson. Okay. Uh, is it his birthday today? It's a happy birthday, Brian. Happy birthday, Brian yeah, Matheson. Yeah, on Facebook. Skyline. It's your birthday. And uh, I told Brian what I was up to, you know, working at this video shop and trying to figure out what to do with my gear. I was thinking of maybe renting a place, putting my gear there and doing enough sessions every month to sort of cover the rent of the place. So I'd have my own place to go to. And he talked me out of that. He said, you don't want to rent your own place. Why don't you stick your gear up at Skyline and you can use the studio on the off hours. And it wasn't a week or two after I'd moved my stuff in there that uh, I was getting frantic calls. We're trying to use your EPS 16 and we don't know how to sample. Can you come over here? So I started getting calls to use my own gear because it was new and exciting and people wanted to use it. You know, not any newer than what he had, but it was different than what they had. So of course, Mm -hmm. something different comes in the room. You want to play with it and wait, how does this work? Well, let's call the guy who owns it. So I started getting calls to do sessions because, uh, you know, it was my stuff and I knew how to use it best. And that was great. So Brian started handing me more and more sessions as he realized I could handle stuff. And then he decided to move out of the location of Skyline up in the hills in someone's basement of a house to a proper commercial facility down by where Leo's was, right behind Leo's on 55th and Telegraph in Oakland, which it's still there. I really got my feet wet in construction. That was the first time I'd ever handled a skill saw before. I learned from Gary Kreiman, I think. Gary Kreiman, who's yeah. been working on the console over at Tiny Telephone. Yeah, yeah. He did all the patching at, at Skyline, and I learned how to properly solder and lay out a patch bay. I learned a lot from that whole summer. From there, I started working at Skyline as you know staff engineer and a little bit of studio management, that kind of thing, uh, balancing whatever tasks needed to happen. I've, I've been pretty obsessed with this stuff at that point for you know, seven years, that kind of thing, six or seven years since high school. And then this was a year or two after high school. And then a guy I was playing in a band with, the drummer said, hey, my friend's dad owns a studio in Berkeley and they're looking for an assistant. Maybe that's something you want to look into. And that was Bay Records. They're, they're no longer there, but Mike's still running stuff out of his house out in the suburbs. And Bay Records is a great room. It was kind of like the next stop down the street from Fantasy. Okay. If you couldn't get into Fantasy, but still needed a big room, chances are you could get in over at bay. Okay. And I started as an assistant there and learned all the proper ways to, you know, set stuff up the way they'd like it, whether Bob, the lead engineer, wanted all the cable coils at the wall where you plug it in, or Mike wanted all the cable coils at the mic so he'd have some slack and all the little, you know, all the special little intricacies you need to learn to be a good assistant. Who likes coffee with cream? Who wants it black? That kind of thing. How to take a proper phone message. Important stuff. Uh, still recording on my own, uh, still working at Skyline, kind of working at both studios at the same time. Skyline was mostly electronic stuff for me at that point, mostly hip hop, Bay Area hip hop and some folks, you know, like E40 and, and stuff like that. Nice, good hip hop music. Oakland has no shortage of good rappers. So I learned a lot there. Most definitely. Yeah. I learned how to get as much 60 cycle as you could out of a speaker. Without blowing it. Well, you know. Making it fart a little bit, maybe, yeah. you know, young, <laughs> enthusiastic. Talking to the other engineer over there, he told me he'd been working for 10 years and had never mic'd a drum kit. Never once. It was all programming drums. And I started to feel kind of funny about that. I was like, is that what this is going to be? Because you know, I want to mic a drum kit. You know, I, I know how to do it, sort of. At that point, maybe I didn't know so well. But So over at Bay Records, there was no MIDI and no electronics and two 1176 compressors and one reverb and a bunch of Neumann mics. And it was a totally different aesthetic. And I learned about microphones and how different types, you know, work and applications and how to hear stuff. Like, you know, I must've worked there for two years before I could really hear when somebody would say, I think the piano needs a tuning. Like, really? I don't know. But now, you know, on my piano here, it's like, 
Oi, she's moving a bit. We better call the tuner, and it's pretty quick to start to bother me. I just I want to interrupt for just one sec. Uh, I like the just the uh, the differences between these two studios, both legit studios. Oh sure, but such a different aesthetic of you know miking a drum set or any acoustic instruments is you know that's very typical. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other, that's that's not even really common or necessary. So it. It's always interesting to me when somebody says, ah, I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm going to build a studio. And I always think to myself or, or say out loud to them, well, you need to think about what your client base is going to be like. So that's going to really kind of dictate your space requirements. Because if you're not going to be micing drums, you sure don't need to be renting a place with ginormous ceilings. Sure. You know, because all that's going to do is just lead to big parties. Right, right. <laughs> Which everything seems to lead to that anyway. It does, yeah. But I, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just no, think that that's fascinating, the differences between those two studios. I think it's important for a studio to have an identity of some sort. At least, you know, like when building this place, for example, I didn't want it to be too specifically music-focused to not be able to get corporate clients, but too clean and corporate to make musicians feel ill at ease when they're here. Like, what are we doing in this fancy place, can I open my beer or not? That kind of thing. Yeah, it does have a good blend of that where I could see, like, I could bring a voiceover client here, but I could also bring, like, you know, a, a rock client here sure. as well. Yeah, I think it, it's important to be flexible. I'm always really amazed by guys who have a career working in one specific genre. I was like, how do you do that? Are there enough bands that do that one kind of music that you keep getting calls to do that? Because, I, you know, it's all over the map what I might see during the week. It might be... Punk rock session one night, jazz sextet the next day, voiceover for a podcast the day after that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, but I think I have to. I couldn't survive otherwise. I mean, you've listened to the show since, you know, way back when. So, you know, I always talk about diversification sure. and how that really can sustain you as an audio pro. Definitely. So, well, so continue on. Take me through the rest of the journey. Hmm. So yeah, working at Skyline and Bay Records parallel until around 99 or so, 98, 99. I, I was able to get more engineering work instead of assisting work at Bay fairly quickly because a friend's band got a budget to do an album and asked me to record it. And we decided to go to Bay and uh, we kept the place booked out for a few weeks. And as a studio owner, Mike's happy to see that. Oh, the engineer's bringing in the three-week block out. This is great. You're no longer an assistant. You're an engineer. You know, and then the other engineer is kind of happy because maybe there's certain gigs he doesn't want to do. Like, uh, I think if you have an acoustic piano, you tend to get a lot of uh, stuff that requires a piano, like um, audition tapes for colleges, recitals, that kind of thing. So maybe, you know, the, the senior engineer doesn't feel like making the drive in to do someone's college audition tape. So then it falls on me, who's no longer an assistant, but an officially titled engineer. So, you know, got a lot of experience on the smaller stuff. And then they started handing me progressively, you know, larger and larger stuff. So, you know, up to the point where like when this studio was getting built in 2006 and 7, 2007, the day the drywall showed up, I got a text from Brian. Hey, all the drywalls here, we're going to get going. And I was looking at a 35-piece jazz orchestra on the other side of the glass and just smiling. Like, A, I was on a great session with great musicians, and B, I didn't have to do any damn drywall. And I was like, great, great. The studio's getting built, and I'm not doing any drywall. Brian, Brian Hood was at the helm. Brian Hood was at the helm, yeah. I did stuff all the insulation in this place. I'm pretty proud of that. I got pretty dusty doing that. But uh, yeah. Lost a few years of your life. No, no, cotton. Mm -hmm. Oh, cotton. If anybody's building, go for the recycled cotton insulation. You don't need fiberglass in your life. Yeah. I did that in San Francisco. And uh, 
just a, a quick story. It was, um, I can't remember what the proper, there's a, there's a brand name. Ultra touch is the kind of the main one. Ultra touch. Okay. I drove across the golden gate bridge to, uh, someplace, someplace, uh, in Marin to find, to, to, to buy the stuff. I'd purchased it and then I just needed to go pick it up. And at the time I had my wife's Honda CRV, you know, kind of a, a, a like a mini SUV type like vehicle. California redemption vehicle. Exactly. Yes. Um, Anyway, so I drive over there uh, with my friend Rob, and we go to pick the stuff up. There was so much of it that we had to strap a few uh, packs to the roof. Oh, nice. And the wind was just howling on the bridge. So on the way back, we both had our hands up on the roof <laughs> because this shit was going to fly off if we didn't. It was, it was a harrowing experience. Like the whole car is packed. You can't see anywhere except in front of you. And the stuff on the roof is ready to fly off. Anyhow. Totally worth it. There's my quick story. Yeah. But didn't have to breathe in the fiberglass, you know, mm -hmm. stuff. So ultra touch. Yeah. Ultra touch. There we go. That's the brand. Cotton recycled denim jeans, right? Yeah. You can see pieces of jeans in there when you're looking at it, like threads, red thread. And it's, it's interesting, huh. but it does give you kind of like Smurf boogers, you know, you blow your nose after <laughs> installing that stuff and uh, it's coming out blue. Smurf boogers. Yeah. There that's we what we were calling them. Okay. So this is getting built. You're on a great session. Brian Hood's running the show. Tell me more about that, that process. Uh, building this place? Yeah. Tell well, me about if you, and I'm not, I don't want to dig into your financial life, but just give me some sense of like costs, uh, general costs and things to th that other studio owners can think about that you went through, some of the lessons you learned along the way of building this place and maybe some either regrets or things that you did uh, on the positive side that you're really happy that you did. I'm really happy I hired Polonis. I hired Chris Polonis to do the design work. I got him at a good time in his workflow. Mm-hmm. While I was working at Bay Records, I lived in a warehouse over 24th Peralta, over like a Lone Star Cement Factory. It was right across the street. So the front part of my house kind of looked like a beach, really, because there's so much cement dust in there. And pet the cat and clouds of dust would come off of him. <laughs> and that was a big space. That was like 3,000 square foot warehouse. Not super tall ceilings because we, we were squeezed between floors. So it was about the same as here, about nine foot ceilings. And uh, I built a small 10 by 10 pad there that was... Uh, on rubber and none of the walls were touching anything there. So I could at least do like quiet stuff in a small area if I had to, while the cement factory was going on across the street. But pretty much I did loud stuff and mixing there. That was probably iteration, I don't know, 10 or so. Before that, I had also concurrent with working at Bay Records, I had built out the Studio B there. The, the back of the building had been kind of storage and underutilized. So I cleared it with Mike to put in a wall and a window and I put my Series 65 back there and a bunch of other stuff I had at the time and ran the B room for a long time then moved everything to the warehouse we had a plumbing problem in the B room that caused a wall to collapse there was a slow leak not in one of the walls I built thank you so it wasn't my fault but uh it it, it forced me to move while we figured out what to do back there because it was kind of uninhabitable because of like mold issues but, uh, oh man! Okay. Yeah, mold can mold can mess you up. Don't mess with the mold. Don't mess with the mold. My father passed away, and this building was sort of underutilized again. I'd been chomping at the bit to get out of that warehouse, and I was looking almost daily for another space to go into because I was having problems with the neighbors and problems with the cement factory being so loud. There was all kinds of work I was passing up, and 
I could effectively work maybe six, seven, eight hours a day, but I couldn't book stuff at night really. And so while I'm looking for stuff, I kept looking over at over here and I didn't know what we were going to do with this building. And I finally, I have three older brothers and my mom. I said, Hey guys, what if I use this place? Is that amenable to everybody and they said absolutely you should use that because paying someone else rent at this point especially at at the time it wasn't super horrible in the bay area we were starting to get all teched out and the rents were jumping but i was paying like 85 cents a square foot in that warehouse it wasn't horrible and that same place is probably two and a half bucks a square foot now that kind of thing yeah so uh i worked it out with the family that okay, yes, I could move in here. And it took me a long time to kind of clear out the office that was here. And then we started the construction part. I wanted to get in touch with a name brand designer. I didn't want to do it myself because I know like I've been in enough studios where there's some fatal flaw. Like, oh, you can't go to the bathroom while we're recording because you have to walk through the live room to get to the bathroom. Just stupid layout stuff or horrible base issues and just stuff where people sank a lot of money into it to only have it marginally useful at the end. And so if I'm going to, you know, borrow as much as I can to do a proper studio in a building that we own, I want somebody with more experience than me to do the design work and get the acoustics right. Cause I don't want to screw around. And I'd already had plenty of time at the warehouse doing DIY acoustic treatment and sort of shooting the speakers myself and trying to make it work. There was a bank vault, which is why we were, we liked the space because it had a bank vault me and my buddy at the time who I was sharing the space with. The idea was to set up the gear temporarily in the bank vault and build like a proper control room back in the warehouse. But it never happened. I just kept all the gear in the bank vault because it was the only room that kind of made sense to do work in. But it was a huge cement room with horrible bass resonance. Anybody whose record I worked on during that time, I apologize. I came out good, did a good job, right? But we were fighting, we were fighting the room a lot. So I knew I wanted a real proper good room that I didn't have to battle my acoustics all the time. Called up Chris, told him what I was thinking of doing, said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a working class engineer. I'm a blue collar guy. I don't have a ton of family money, but I do make a living doing this, but I'm not totally broke. Right, right in the middle of that curve where like, I have to record to eat, but that's all I know how to do. I don't have any other source of income. And he said, well, I just finished, you know, nine studios for Sony and I'm all corporate constructioned out. I could help you out. And he gave me a good rate on the on the design fee and we came up with a plan that was smart of like semi-custom build you look around and i don't know if you're going to take pictures or whatever yeah there's all pictures. these uh it's mostly rpg stuff here that was all built off site it was all fabricated and all these big blue things with the with the pine trim those are chris's they're called the edge okay the edge or the wedge the edge i think and that's his patented base absorber thing. And there's some secret sauce in there and we could tear it apart and figure it out, but that wouldn't be nice. And But that was all built off site? That was all built off site. We, f we came up with the dimensions for the rooms, good sized rectangles, you know, rectangles with good dimensions in them. You don't have weird nodes and buildups and problem areas. And then he designed basically the right amount of treatment for this volume of a room or that volume of a room or the smaller ISO booth. They all have different size absorbers in them and diffusion in them. All built off-site, all showed up on a flatbed truck, installed it in an afternoon. There was wow. a couple, there was, you know, Chris was up here a couple times for the build. He came up to look at the place, and then he came up as we were about 80% done, and then he came up to tune the speakers. But in between that, Brian and I were kind of on our own. And Brian has tons of experience with construction. Uh, very little here. I helped with Skyline. I built the B room at, at Bay. I wrecked a couple rentals by slapping... Uh, Sliding glass doors in without getting permission, things like that. So I, you know, I, I can I can run a saw, but I couldn't you know, frame up a room or anything. So 
while we're doing it, you, you bump into problems, things like uh, we measured the inner dimensions of the doors and gave them to the door company. There's like steel doors here, security doors that are you know great for acoustics, but also great for security. And uh, when the doors came, they were too big to fit in our rough openings. And I had already moved in like some gear and things like that. So we had to either get new doors made, which the door company didn't want to do. They were blaming us. We were blaming them. Or we had to cut the door openings larger. So we chose to do a little selective surgery on all the rough openings after these steel doors came. But that was like really the biggest problem that we had. And that wasn't that bad of a problem. It was only about a week setback and a lot of cursing. You know, it was like, oh man, I can't believe it. These don't fit. Well, let's make it work. The base traps behind you, if I was to pull them away from the wall, I had to cut off about six inches of one corner so they'd fit through the door to get in this room. Things uh, like that. Like, you know, you can plan as much as you want, but there can be things like, well, the the pre-made base trap won't fit in the room, so now what do we do? It's like, well, you, know, you work around stuff. Uh, but they made it in, you know. With, they're still complete units. They're not completely chopped up or anything like that. As I got in here and we were... Um taking a look around you said that if you were ever to need to move you could take a lot of this with you the the treatment kind of scales of course it'll work in a room smaller than this but it'll work in a room larger than this by a percentage maybe 15 20 percent you could still get real good good suck out of, out of all the absorption and <laughs> good that kind suck. of thing. yeah good suck it's always good to have you good want, suck yeah you need some good suck and some good soak and uh if I had to leave here, if if things weren't going well and we needed to rent the space to someone else or we decided to move or, I mean, you saw coming in here, this whole, this whole neighborhood is totally changing. Every neighborhood in the Bay Area seems to be changing. Yeah. But this is I'm, no different. At this point, I'm like, we need a stoplight at the end of the block and there's too many people and what happened to all the parking? Get yeah, off my you're lawn. You're now the old, I uh, am. The, uh, the old codger. Yeah. I, you know, my next door neighbors changed from, yeah, they changed. Let's just say they changed and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the old neighbors better. Yeah. It's, it's always the new neighbors who. They're you, fine. You know, and I know that everybody who listens to this show is going to be like, oh no, he's going on another San Francisco rant. But you know, like one of the things that just continually pisses me off is people who come to the Bay Area for a job. They move into a neighborhood where there's a club and they move next door to the club knowing there's a club there and then they have the fucking balls to complain about the noise from the club and then ultimately rally all their buddies and get the club shut down. So many times. So we're even over here in the in the East Bay, which is, you know, it's it's moving almost as quick as San Francisco, but not not quite as bad. I don't I don't know if I'd be doing this in a rental at this point. I might be doing something else. This is this would be pretty ambitious for a rental. Yeah, it's a pretty big space. And the warehouse that I had before this was pretty big, but it was way different. It was, you know, like I said, it was across from a cement factory and, you know, cops are chasing people across our roof from time to time. Things things happened there. In the time I've been here, it's very pleasant. It's very quiet. Temperature's great. And it's been like, you know, uh, in the high 90s in the Bay Area recently in the last several days. I just heard the AC kick on when you said that. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's very pleasant here. So you've done an outstanding job, and hats off to Brian Hood and Chris Polonis as well for for their work. It's it's really good. When I see stuff like this, and maybe it's also my, the influence of my discussion with Brian and um, seeing what he did with 
tiny telephone B and C. You know, <laughs> it just goes to show you when you want to do something really well, you know, I'm all for the punk rock DIY aesthetic, but damn, when you hire people who know what they're doing. There's people who have recognizable names out there because because they're good at it and they've been doing it a long time. And oftentimes it's the same price as hiring someone who isn't that experienced yet. Or it's going to save you a lot of money in the long run by not making mistakes that you have to spend to fix later. That's for sure. It's And it just, and all those uh, concepts can be applied to the world of recording sure. as well from a client perspective, hiring engineers and, and such. But yeah, when you hire pros to do this kind of stuff, the results speak for themselves. Sure. But, you know, to be clear, I don't. I wouldn't have put this kind of money into a place I had a lease on, that kind of thing. Yeah. That wouldn't have been smart at all. And here's something to think about. I did, you know, going into things as a recording guy, I don't look at stuff the way like my brother who's involved in commercial real estate might. I said, hey, I mean, when I was going to take over that warehouse space, he said, well, negotiate some rent for him for all the work you're going to do in there because I had planned to build a couple bedrooms and we, we were going to do that control room but bailed out ultimately. But we definitely built three different rooms in that place and it cost us time and money and that was the only job I formed on and it's still standing I think so I did a good <laughs> job but um you know he said make sure to talk these guys want to rent this space just because you want the space doesn't mean they don't want to rent it to you so I managed to negotiate like four months of free rent out of that place at like 1650 or something a month at the time said you know I just if you're clear and professional, and I presented them with the plan of what we wanted to do and the budget that we had to do it, and I said, these are the improvements. Can you give me some sort of rental credit for tenant improvements? And they, they were happy to do that. And it's really common. I think they Brian at Skyline did the same thing when he moved in. It's like, look, we're going to make this space a lot better for you. We're going to do it properly. We're not going to half-ass it. So make us want to improve your space instead of improving some other guy's space. And and I just want to bring this up as well. And maybe this, to to those listening, I'm sure that this is common sense, but it's just, I want to reiterate it. But when you're going to do a business, when you're going to do any business, really, but in, in our world, let's say you want to build a studio, you really, if you're going to do it, do it well. And doing it well not only means constructing it well and doing all, all that, but you know, talking to people outside of our world, in, in your case, your brother, sure, who is familiar with commercial real estate. So, you know, having a few conversations, whether they be a paid one-hour consulting type situation or just a, a cup of coffee with a, with a friend who's in a particular field that applies, man, can really reveal a lot of information to set you up. You know, it's like, Doing the research and just really treating it with great respect, I think, if you're going to build a studio. Like, if I were to build a studio today, which I, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to do that, I think I would really put a lot more time and research into doing it and then bring all my past sins with me to, yeah. to the table to go, okay, what do I not want to do? How do I not want to goof this up? All right, I hope you are enjoying this interview here with uh, our friend Jeremy Goody from Megasonic Sound here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Time to take a sponsor break with Audio-Technica, of course. And I want to point out, maybe you're a new listener, maybe you haven't been around that long. I want to point out to you that on the workingclassaudio.com website, that's right, there is a website. It's not just on iTunes. So if you haven't been there, head over there and uh, take a look at if you... I'm over there now. If you go under the logo... 
there's four tabs there. And if you go to the far right one, I'm going there now, WCA bonus content. If you scroll to the very bottom there, WCA Audio Technica mic samples. Old listeners will uh, be familiar with this, but new listeners, if you haven't checked that out, uh, and even new uh, old listeners who haven't checked it out yet, uh, I encourage you to go over there because uh, in two different sessions, I went over to Bird and Egg Studios uh, with Nina Michella, who's been on the show. We did some, uh, we took some samples, and in uh, the first one that's listed there, we we met up and we uh, recorded some samples of three different large diaphragm mics in three different price points, uh, the AT2035, uh, the 4047, and the 5040. Those samples are up there for you to compare and contrast. And then we did a series of uh, 40 series mic samples featuring the, uh, the 4033, the 4047, the 4060, and the 4080, uh, all on various things. Uh, there's some vocal samples and some guitar samples. So uh, check those out, see what you think. It's a really great way to just kind of get a sense of what some of those mics sound like because Audio-Technica has a great selection of mics, uh, but there's many choices and sometimes it's hard to know what direction you want to go into. But when you hear some of these samples, you might think, oh, okay, that's that's something that I want to add to my toolbox. So uh, be sure and check that out. That's under uh, the uh, WCA Audio-Technica mic samples are under the uh, WCA bonus content on the page. Well, let's get back into it. Let's talk some more with Jeremy Goody here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is one of the things you know I always ask on the show. What's your financial philosophy with regards to your gear, your studio, your future retirement, any of that? Like, do you have a plan or do you not have a plan? I sort of have a plan, but not completely. I mean, I don't hope to retire, to be honest. I've been doing this since I was a little kid. And I hope to do it until I can't hear anymore. I, I learned from Mike at Bay Records. I don't know if people agree with this, but it's, and I don't even know if I agree with it yet, but it's definitely stuck in my head. He said, the recording studio business is secretly the real estate business. It's like, explain that. And he said, well, if you can afford to buy a piece of property, you know, good luck in the Bay Area in 2000, whatever we're in, 16. Mm -hmm. But if you can buy the property and then make records there for long enough to the, for the property to appreciate, your profit is when you stop making records and you sell the property to someone else. If you can build a nice studio and operate it for 15, 20 years and then sell the studio or the building to another guy, that's sort of your retirement nut. Because really, and especially now, there aren't budgets that are going to allow you to sock away a whole lot of savings unless you're really, really frugal with how you live. And I'm not. I'm pretty sloppy with how I spend my money. It's not necessarily smart, but it's who I am and I've come to expect that and I've been trying to change it. I'm I'm a lot better with my gear purchasing now than I was say 10 years ago. And that might be because after you've, you know, used 20 different mics on a snare drum and you make it to the end product, you realize a snare drum's a snare drum's a snare drum and what mic you use does have an effect, but there's no one microphone that's going to change anything for you. And it's they're all just tools and I've learned a lot better not to listen to the gear as much, but as what the gear is being used for. If, you know, great microphone, cool, but what's the singer doing on the other side of the microphone? Because, you know, I can have another great microphone just as great as this one or just as rotten as it. it that what equipment you're using matters a whole lot less than what you're using it for. So it's made it a little easier for me to not lust after gear and not want to hear that compressor and see if 
its attack and release are going to be magical compared to some other compressor, you know, that kind of thing. And I try to have, at least as far as gear here in the studio, I try to have the basic mechanics of the different types of gear you're going to have in the studio covered. Mm -hmm. There's a VCA compressor. There's FET compression. There's opto compression. There's Varimu compression. There's not a million channels of each because I can't afford the space or, you know, I don't have the money to get that kind of stuff. But there, should you need that type of compressor, it's here. Same thing with the preamps. If you look over there, there's some transformerless pre's. There's a bunch of big transformer pre's. There's some tube pre's. You know, there's the different types of preamps you're going to need to get different types of sounds. And this is very important. I really like that you mentioned this. Instead of, uh, like you mentioned, the different types of compressors. I love that. FET, VCA, uh, Verimu, and um, Opto. And then the different types of mic pre's. I think that, I don't know if everybody thinks like that, but now that you say it, I realize, oh yeah, well, of course. Well, if you're going to cook a meal, you want ingredients. So you need the various, you know, I don't need four chickens, but if I want to cook a chicken, I need a chicken. So if you want the sound of a tube mic through a tube preamp, which sometimes I do, but anyway, you know, you got to have that stuff on hand. Less and less have I felt the need to have more of that stuff on hand. Like, what good would another four mic preamps do for me, except for being another decision I have to make at tracking? Like, right now I have six channels of that Wonder. I know what that Wonder stuff sounds like. I got those six tube channels of the Sebatron and the Telefunkens. You know, I know what they sound like. I don't have to think, huh, which one of these preamps am I going to use on, you know, like, you see people with like a 500 series rack with 20 different options of something that does the same task. It's like, well, at one point, are you just kind of like sampling wine instead of recording? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, yes, that does have a slightly extended top end. That's delicious. It's that's not going to get you anywhere. It's useless. Right. And, you know, it's nice to have good equipment. I think you need solid workhorse equipment. It's nice to have esoteric stuff, but it's not necessary, and it's esoteric. It's expensive, and it's the creme de la creme, but it's that, it's that, that last 15%, you know, with, with a car, with home building, with anything. To go from something that serves you well and is solid to something that is truly outstanding, it's, it's a lot of money change, and it's very little performance change. You know, I can get down the road in my Ford, or I can get down the road in a Porsche, you know? Yeah. So... Oh, yeah. I'm, the Porsche I'm, is nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, living in the Bay Area, there, I see a lot of very incredible cars, but man, I'm super happy with my, my CRV, my Honda. Yeah, that's a solid car. Anyways, I think, our, I think our point is made, but wow, that's, that's a powerful message there. I really like that. Um, the different types of compressors to address those different tonalities, the different types of mic pre's. And microphones, for sure. Okay, yeah. You know, and like I'm babysitting, like any studio, it's, you know, there's a lot of my equipment here, but there's lots of other people's equipment here too. Uh, I'm, I'm babysitting gear. I like. I'm babysitting it, and it it took me a long time to use other people's equipment in my own place because I've seen other studios where they rely. They've traded out studio time enough. Though you know, like a lot of studios, like for example, when I first started with Brian, leave your gear here. You can have access to the studio. You know, and a lot of people do that. It's a really common thing. I think even um, Brian Hood mentioned it on your guys' interview. Yes. His mic preamps are there, and I have some of his 452s and a Blueberry mic, you know, and and in return, he comes and records. You know, so there's a lot of gear here that, like, uh, 
for a minute there, Mike was, I have a pair of these RCA 77 ribbon mics. I do a lot of jazz, a lot of horns. Yeah. So those come in really handy. And, uh, recently Mike was thinking, I might get rid of the RCA 77s. I, I need to use money for other stuff. And I started to panic. Uh Oh, the 77s are going away. What am I going to do for a ribbon mic? I found one on eBay one weekend that eh, I'll get it. It's a few hundred bucks. Check out a $300 ribbon mic and see if I like it or not. I used it a couple times. I don't, Luckily, Mike decided not to sell the RCAs, so I still have them here. Yay. But the $300 mic, it's cool. It's all right. It works, but it's not like I'm excited to use it. So now I kind of like... So gear acquisition. I can't go in any more debt. I maximized. I got a couple loans to build this place. It's what's manageable with the amount of work I can do as an individual. I do rent the place out to other engineers, but mostly it's me using it. So I'm at a point where like, I'm not spending any money on anything unless I absolutely need it. So if another horn section comes in and the RCAs aren't here and all I have is this $300 ribbon mic for the berry sacks or whatever, and I don't quite like it, I might find a way to buy a decent microphone. But it's usually, it, it's going to be situational. Um, I borrowed a pair of 414s from a friend to record this piano trio. The 414s went away. The trio wanted to come back and do some overdubs but his mics were in New York with him on a recording session. So I had to jump on eBay and spend my lunch money to get a pair of 414s to match the previous session. You know, it was like, it was situationally necessary. So that's the, the pitfalls of babysitting people's gear. It is the pitfall of having other people's gear to rely on is it can go away. And then you're in a situation where you need it and you don't have it and you don't have gear of your own because you didn't need your own gear. Cause you're, you know, so I try to have as much as my own gear as I can to get the job done nicely. And I think it's good to have the discussion. I know that none of us are complete saints when it comes to that stuff. And I think I like talking about it on the podcast because part of it's, you know, cathartic and and confessional for me (laughs) to talk about my past financial sins. But maybe listeners out there don't have a 100% plan of what they're going to do. But just hearing the information and thinking about it, I think, is a good step in the right direction to go what am I going to do to get out of debt so I can maintain my sure my my lifestyle, my gear habits, whatever? Well, and when I was thinking about building this place, I was also moonlighting as a as a broadcast audio engineer for a company in the city that did lots of uh, podcasts, that kind of thing, and uh, like sales seminars where you go to a place with a Mackie board and ten AKG like C one thousand mics, you know, and uh, and ten sets of headphones and get everybody patched into a phone line. And the owner of that company, I had said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of building this studio over in Oakland, but it's really a larger financial commitment than I've ever made to anything. And I'm really nervous about it. What's your take on it? Because he had built this, you know, he had 16, 18 employees working for this big corporate communication company that he built from the ground up. And he said, could you sleep at night owing a million dollars? And I said, yeah, like a baby, I don't care. And he said, then you're a businessman. Don't even worry about it. You know, so that was kind of the last blessing I needed was, well, if you're okay with owing someone money and it doesn't affect you negatively, then it's not necessarily the worst thing to have a bunch of debt. Do you have kids? I have no kids. Like if I didn't have kids, I think I'd be a lot more cavalier about it. Sure. And I, and I think it'd be a little more adventurous. I got to be a little more... Those with kids, as, as you would expect, have to be a little more cautious about it. But well, and that's been a discussion at our house too, because we're you know we've been together for a long time and married for a while, and we're not getting any younger. And do we want kids or not? And it's like, well, I don't feel. First of all, I still feel like I'm 
12 years old and how could I possibly be a father? Yeah, it, I will tell you this as, you know, having gone through that transition, it's, um, it changes the focus of your life. It's no longer all about you. And if you can stomach that, then great. Um, having kids is not for everybody. I, I love my kids and I wouldn't go back to not having kids for anything, but, uh, and here's the, here, here's the bonus of, of, of that, even though it, it's not about you, it really changes the focus of what you're doing. Sure. So it makes you, and I'm not saying that the way you're running is, is derelict in any way, but it, for me, it really has forced me to get my shit together. And I'm a little bit of a late bloomer. I should have got my shit together a, a long time ago when the kids were a lot younger, but <laughs> I'm just now coming around and this podcast and, and everybody tolerating listening to me uh, ask these questions is, uh, this has been part of that process for me. Sure, that so, makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, you know, we don't have kids and we're both pretty selfish people, I think, as far as we're both really into the stuff that we do. Mm -hmm. And- I and like, there's nothing wrong. There's with nothing that. wrong with that. And I'll pull all-nighters here. I was for a while I was assigning myself at least one all-nighter a month. Like, look, you have this place, use the place. Like don't forget to use the place. Even if it's like, you know, working for other people is one thing, but making my own music and expressing myself is something I've always done and sort of how I got into all this stuff. So I try to come here and at least do some writing. So having kids would really hinder that. It would my all nighters would probably disappear. That yeah, kind of stuff. That's for sure. So it's it's all you know what's important to you, and and maybe um, that will become more important to me in the future, and I'll want to focus on that more than I do right now. But right now, I mean, making records and making music is pretty much the most important thing I do. What's the arrangement long term? Your family has equity in this building. Sure. Okay. So do you have to pay rent? I cover all the costs with keeping the building going and property taxes, that kind of thing. Okay. So they, it's no burden on them. It's no burden on them. But what if the, the pipe leading out to the sewer needed to be replaced? Is that on you? That's or? on me. Okay. And hopefully that won't happen. Maintenance and wear and tear is on you. Maintenance, wear and tear, any emergency. You know, if the air conditioner decides to go, it's up to me to get it fixed or replace it. Okay. But you didn't have to buy the building you were able to just allocate your money towards Polonis and Hood and, and the materials. And the materials, and that's what you spent your money on. So that's that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. It's all, it's all kind of, it times out perfectly. Like, what I've been paying off is pretty much exactly what it cost. Most of the gear I already owned, and I'd already paid off three or four times. You know how it is with credit cards. Like, oh, yeah. Ah, this $600 mic cost me $1,400, <laughs> but whatever. I've been using it, you know. I haggled for the price, but ultimately I'm going to pay more for it on the credit card. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. I mean, credit cards are really stupid, but they are a pretty useful tool if you're responsible with it, or if you, as best you can be, you know. Um, but like, you know, for example, the M88, that I've been using in kick drum forever. I got that and like, I don't know. I can't even remember when I got that. It was a Cars Get Crushed record and they broke up before 2000. You know, it was like 95 or oh, something buy, like that. the buyer M88. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, you know, a mic, you know, a mic that I bought on a credit card in the 90s that I've been using since then. You know, it's like, well, I must have paid it off around there sometime, but it's this nebulous number or this, 
if you could go and track every purchase you made on your credit card from movie tickets down to microphones and figure out how long it took you to pay off each one, your your mind would explode, I think. Did, did you set up a uh, a corporation or are you sole proprietor? Or? Sole proprietor. Okay. Yeah. It uh, costs a bunch of money for a corporation and you have to do a bunch of extra work. You and do. There's, there's yeah. a bit of protection there, but that kind of protection I don't think I need. Like, I've never had, knock wood, a client want to sue me for any reason. I've been caught in the middle of other studios and clients. I've been called by friends who work at studios like, hey, man, there's a problem with this client. We lost all their stuff from this hard drive, and they didn't have copies of it, and now they want to sue us for what they spent on recording. Can you come speak on our behalf as a studio owner that we're not responsible for their files? And I always say, nope, that's not my department. You know, you are responsible for their files, in my opinion. And then I get a call 10 minutes later from a client hey, we worked together and I did some work at this studio and they lost all my files and I think I need to take them to court and can you come testify on my behalf that they were responsible for my files? And it's like, nope, because you're responsible for your files. Ultimately, you know, it would be on either side. I got kind of sidetracked here. I forgot what we were doing. No, this is fascinating. But um, as far as a corporation, you're, you're offered a bit of protection. And I guess, you know, if I was to default on a bunch of stuff, there'd be protection there. The corporation would be defaulting, not the person. Right. But um, I'm not a corporation, and I don't have a lot of love for corporate America. I'm an individual, so I do business that way. Okay. And uh, yeah, so okay. it's, it's set up very simply, and it makes it easier to do my taxes, and I don't have to do that quarterly reporting and all of that nonsense. Yeah, and, and in the state of California, I know that like if you're an S corporation, you've got to pay, I think at uh, the time I had it, it was like you had to pay 800 bucks a year yeah. to the state. Sure. So, so I don't have employees or anything like that. Yeah. It's just me, sole proprietor. If someone wants to use the studio, they're just a person. I have guys that, like, if I need someone to fill in for me, I could call a couple different friends who know how to use the room mm-hmm. and ask them to do the session. Hmm. But there's no one who I'm responsible. I, I'm actually kind of scared to be responsible for someone else's well-being. I mean, you know, I'm keeping myself together here, but if I had a couple of assistants here or something like that, you know, I wouldn't want them to work for free and... uh you know, that's that greatly increases the overhead and the responsibility you have. You know, sort of like having children, I suppose. So you could, <laughs> like, you birthed a couple of recording assistants. Oh, crap. Right? Where are the kids? <laughs> Hopefully, they're coiling cables. No. <laughs> Fortunately, they're at summer camp right now. Um, I want to chase this this concept down sure. just really quickly. Um, what is this? Or, this is a common experience that you've encountered or a one off thing where somebody, where a studio was being sued and for loss of files and twice that i can think of wow two different studios about three years apart wow interesting yeah and you know your talks on the podcast about backing stuff up and that kind of thing if you look there's like that raw drive over there next to the other hard drives that's the first and i've been so i have everything backed up i have two drives i use in the computer one to record and one to back up to and then all kinds of external drives to then further back up stuff once the project's done. And I bought one of those little external docks that you can stick raw drives in. It costs like 20 bucks. And I got my first two terabyte raw drive. It was like 60 bucks. And I cloned one of my first backups. I was like, I want, because I've had problems too, where like a band I might have recorded, say, five years ago, I had one backup drive die. And it was a really key one for me where I lost like five or six really, you know, solid records. And one band came looking for their backup because they didn't have theirs anymore, and I couldn't recall it. And I still feel bad. That was like a year ago. I was like, I want to, you know, I want to be there. I want to have did, their record. In that case, did the drive just? Uh, <clears throat> it just wouldn't start up anymore. 
and it, it wasn't power started. supply. It wasn't a software thing I could fix. It just died. Wow. Or maybe, you know, looking back, maybe if I had taken a different order of operations to try to fix it, I wouldn't have killed the data on there. Who okay. knows, you know? I know more about drive recovery now, having had a couple more die. That's what I'm a big fan of the of you know not only local backups but just a cloud backup solution, just to sure. kind of take the edge off. Yeah, and tertiary backup. Like, okay, you have all your files backed up. Now back up the backup, like you've been saying. I think you've been doing that recently too. Yeah, it's uh, it feels good, right? It, it feels a little bit better. Like, yeah, I feel <clears throat> I feel empowered, and I also feel like um, when clients come, you know hunting and pecking for well, in fact i just had a client the other day hey so the the mixes you did like six months or a year ago um i need stems so i can uh uh we're gonna make some backing tracks for a live show and i know i have it yeah which is really great and i but you know of course i i don't know exactly where it is i gotta go hunting it's on one of the drives backed up and it's in it's in the cloud as well but well and backups and stuff as far as mixes if you're mixing analog too, I mean, just until recently, I've been using one of those fulcrums and I was doing a lot of outboard gear inserted, you know, and summit, summit like that. And if I sold a compressor or an EQ and then someone wanted to come and recall their mix and, you know, it was going through some piece of gear that I don't have anymore. It's like, well, the short answer is I can't recall it exactly but you don't want to hear the long answer. Like, yeah, it, it'll be the same mix, but it won't be exactly the same mix, but you don't want to see how the sausage is getting made. Just trust, you know? <laughs> so you got to be, if once you have like your tool set, it's kind of a good idea to either hang on to that stuff or don't change it too much because somebody might need that exact same, you know, oh, I sold that mic or I sold, you know, it's, oh, I, I wish we could come in and, and punch in the vocals on this one tune that we did last year. Oh, I don't have that vocal mic anymore. That can be problematic. Then again, you know, you do what you can. Yeah, I mean, that's that's unavoidable unless a, um, a massive um, change um, mm -hmm. or, or paradigm shift in what bands are willing to, to pay for and, and what engineers are willing to do. Mm -hmm. That That's kind of inevitable. I mean, that's why I'm a big advocate of mixing in the box because I can, even though I may switch computer systems, I still have that system the I still have an old the old system that this stuff that I just mentioned was mixed on, so I can pull it up, and so it's a no brainer for me. And then it creates another um, income stream because you know I, I I responded right up front and said I don't know exactly where the stuff is. I do have it. I just need to hunt it down. And then I say and uh, I'll let you know what the time factor is going to be in the cost, which will be minimal because all I got to do is pull it up, create some stems, and spit it out. Oh, it's a lot quicker too and cheaper if it's all internal because you don't have to. Bring everything. I've been using like a flip cam over the years to videotape all my gear. I used to do and then that. I save that video and watch the video to see how the mix was set up. That's 15 minutes. You yeah. know what I mean? To set all the knobs to the right spot. But if you just open it up and everything's good to go, assuming all your plugins are current, that kind of thing, 10 minutes and you're done. What are you looking like book, booking wise? Are you, are you solid? Is it, are you just going through peaks and valleys like many, many others or um, are you pretty booked? Fairly consistent. I mean, I've, been able to say to, to people who want to book time a couple weeks out and i'm usually i have stuff to keep me busy for you know most of a month whether it's you know tracking sessions coming in at a scheduled time or an album i'm mixing on my own that i might have like negotiated a flat fee to mix a record or a per song fee or maybe i'll keep track of the hours it seems more and more people are getting comfortable with remote work not that i'm doing work for people from boston or whatever but i might have a musician come here and 
we'll work on the mix. And then I say, okay, let me work on this for a bit. And then I'll send you some references and you check it out for a bit and get back to me with what we need to change. And we might do that two, three times before there's a reason for us to be in the same room and get down to the nitty gritty of, okay, let's sit next to each other now. And is one DB enough? Two B, two DB too much? That kind of stuff. So I'm, I, I try to schedule my work where if I don't have a tracking session in the calendar, I'll put in someone who I'm working on their project. If I'm working on Rico's record, Rico's going down on all my blank days until tracking sessions call and start asking me about time. And then, well, I have this day set aside to mix, but I could use that for your tracking just to make sure I have those mix days still set aside somewhere on the calendar. So people's projects that aren't necessarily bound by time that are just, as you get to it, mix my album, as you get to it, master my record, that kind of thing. You really got to not bump all that stuff. You really got to put it on the calendar as like, okay, Monday from 10 till 2, I'm doing someone's master, even though they're not going to be around for it. I'm not going to book a voiceover session on Monday from 10 till 2. I'm going to do that master, even though they're not going to be around for it. You need to account for that time being blocked out. You know, So there's a roughing in of the calendar that happens every month where, okay, I got these 15 days booked to record this month, and I'm going to put the other 15 days in as mix dates. And okay, I got a few more days of recording. Let me get rid of a few of those mix dates. Okay, I should probably get out and exercise one of these days. Let me put that in. You got to schedule time for yourself too, especially if you're self-employed. You definitely need to like schedule some breathing room in there. Um, I used to do work for a studio as a freelancer and you'd call up and you could never get time in the studio. Oh, we're booked up for the next two months. It's like, really? You're really booked up for two solid months? I can't get this band in here for one Saturday? Well, I mean, I had, well, okay, the next week is wide open. Well, how did you go from being booked for two months to a wide open week? Oh, well, he was a composer and he had that week set aside for his own personal projects. And he'd be loath to give up that time because that was his personal creative time at the studio. But then again... He needs the income. So, okay, my project's getting delayed another year or whatever it is, yeah, that kind of thing. You got to prioritize money coming in. And, you know, somebody pays you something up front to mix their album or they're going to pay you at the end. You need to make sure you have money coming in uh, to cover your expenses while you're doing this work. If they paid you a thousand bucks, you spend all the money and then you haven't mixed their album. You got to figure out how to support yourself while you're mixing their album. Or if they're not going to pay you till you're done, you got to get that on the schedule and get it done. You can't halfway work at it because... I, I love being paid half up front, half at, upon completion because, you know, it just incentivizes you. It's like, well, if you want the other half of your money, you're going to have to finish this record. That, yeah, that's a classic agreement I think everybody comes to. I, I like that a lot. You know, there's a lot of stuff where I keep track of the hours and bill them for it, but I make sure if it's not two weeks, I bill every month. You know, I've, I've want, I do a lot of music recording, but easily a third of my income every year is from the one company that um, they do like uh, production for like Halloween animatronics, like toys you'd see in the spirit stores or Target or Home Depot, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They keep me plenty busy. And all I do is I, uh, I keep track of my hours and I submit a bill at the end of the month. And they want to know per project how long did you spend on the frankenstein how long did you spend on dracula so they can work out their own costing so i'm really clear i usually just do it like an ical at this point i'll 
in a calendar event, I'll say this company and hours for the month. And every time I go to work on their stuff, I'll put in the start time, stop time, and what projects I worked on. You know, whatever expenses, whether there's voice talent, I usually cover the cost of the voice talent, get reimbursed later, that kind of thing. How did you get that gig? Friend of a friend. Pretty much a month after I, I finished this place and opened up the doors, okay, I'm ready to actually do some work in here. Everything was built, wired, ready to go. Someone said, hey, I want you to meet a friend of mine at this company. They do really weird work, but I think it's right up your alley. And the first couple things I did with them took off really well, and they got reorders and good reviews and stuff. And So apparently, you know, I got a knack for making scary things. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's, you know, it's evolved where... Um, at the time, it was sort of seasonal work, mm -hmm. a couple months at a time. And now it's pretty much every month I have some task list from them to do, whether it's little stuff, a few hours, or 45, 50, 60, 80 hours of work that month because they have a huge production run for a sales seminar or something like that. We're about out of time. What uh, your parting thoughts on your experience with the studio that you want to share, practical advice and or lessons learned? Keep it clean. <laughs> Keep the studio clean? Keep the studio clean. You know, someone said um, you can really judge the quality of what kind of work someone's going to do by the quality of their surroundings. Now, you know, there's a flip side of that. There's the crazy mad scientists who everything's in disarray around them. But, you know, most people don't want to come into a shithole. They want to come into a place where they feel comfortable sitting down. It's not Sound City. You know, I don't have a giant Neve and the world's best drum rooms to so you can pee in the corner and no one's going to care. It's got it's got to be nice. It's got to be clean. Got to have a lot of personality and and be pleasant to be around, but be efficient and professional. You know, part of having my own place is really the flexibility of if I know a sextet's going to be coming in at ten in the morning on a Friday, I will try to not book any large tracking sessions before that, so I can get the live room set up the way I need it and get all the mics plugged in and tested. I might I might be ready to record a band five days before they get there just because all my other work that week is mixing and I'm not going to be in the live room and I can leave all the stuff set up. And there's the flip of that where you have quick turnovers, mm -hmm. which can be difficult as a one-man shop. You know, So I'd say you know, running a studio, you, you want to be available to a lot of people and accessible to lots of different kinds of people. Saying no is, isn't really the best way to go unless it's something you know is really going to waste your time and is just going to be really painful. Or it could end up in you being harmed physically, that kind of thing. There's sketchy people out there. There's sketchy clients. I've been in a couple sessions where people have been field stripping their weapon in the back on the couch. Not here and not for a long time. This isn't right. There shouldn't be guns in the studio, that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> so yeah, that kind of stuff. When it seems like it's going to be just painful, I'm, you know, I'm a middle-aged person now. I don't need that. I'm not 25. I'm 45. Yeah. So I kind of draw the line at ridiculous stuff. But even even the most seemingly beneath you type of work, which I think that's a pretty snooty attitude, but even a couple junior high kids who whose mother wants them to come in and play piano for Christmas gifts for their parents, grandparents, whatever, that is audio recording work. And that is something you should take pride in and do the best job you can. And at the very least, if you're working on something you don't really care about, use that as an opportunity to to better your technical skills, to get the best damn piano sound you can for this kid mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it might be, put your heart into it. And people, people will definitely respond to that. Most of my work is repeat clientele or word of mouth in, in small musical circles around here. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to like get phone calls from someone you've been admiring locally for years. Like, 
oh yeah, I'd love to do your record. I've been listening to you for 10 years, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's so as long as you don't screw stuff up, which is key. A number one, don't screw stuff up. Be prepared. Be nice. Know when to reel in your own personality. I, I like to, I've always been the class clown and I'm a loud mouth. And at some point you got to know when to shut up and just be the technician. You want to provide what people need of you. I always tell people, if you need me to provide musical opinion, I can. I'm a trained musician. I can tell you what I think, but I'm not going to tell you what I think without you wanting to know what I think. I've seen other engineers say stuff that have gotten them kicked off the gig just by, you know, that was a great take. Did I ask you if that was a great take? I don't want to know if you think that was a great take. I need a guy who's not going to say anything, that kind of thing. So the one hand, you want to be the consummate technician, but you also want to be a creative professional who can step to the plate. If somebody needs an idea or somebody isn't sure what's wrong, maybe you can provide some insight as to what might be fixable. You truly have to be a chameleon too, because from one minute doing a hip hop session where things are a little more lax uh, and everybody's having a good time to some uptight corporate voiceover sure. where you have guys in suits sitting in the back. I think your presentation too, like it's not a flip-flop and shorts day when you're doing corporate VO locked to video. That's long pants and a button-up shirt day. It is, yeah. And you know, there's what I do like about doing uh, that type of work is the uh, the pure focus and simplicity of it. Exactly. Yeah, that's I love that kind of stuff because it it generally it pays well. There's no namby pamby like oh I don't know I really want you know the snare drum to sound like you know John, yeah I want the drums to sound like John Bonham. There's none of that musician BS as I like. There to call d- it. there really is not, and in spite of the uptightness that can come with that. If you do it right, you can really keep the tension low in the room and everybody's happy. Well, and you can afford to work on albums for people because, I mean, a lot of musicians don't have a lot of money. So if they come at you with a budget that would be undoable if all you did was music recording, you have to say no. But if you just cleaned up doing pretty well with some VO work and you're feeling sort of flush, yeah, I can do your album. You know, I can, I can afford to do that by doing other types of work. Diversification is absolutely necessary unless you're uh, what I'd call like a name brand producer engineer where bands are seeking you out and they're willing to pony up X amount of money for you specifically. Now, I get people looking for me, but I'm in direct competition with Fantasy. I'm in direct competition with 25th Street. I don't, even, I don't like to think of it as much as competition because there's enough work out there to keep all of us busy. Obviously, everyone's booked all the time it seems it really seems that like yeah we're the bay area is going crazy with recording yeah i wish i'd opened my studio now i I would admit the time when you had that going it seemed like a bit of a lull i was having a hard time at that point (laughs) it's all timing man what what a terrible time to open a studio it was cool though i told you i stopped in there you weren't there but i was doing a mastering session in the other room and snooped around well, this is great, man. I, I, I love being here. It's a fantastic spot. And uh, you have some great nuggets of wisdom that I think a lot of people are going to enjoy. So thank you. Oh, thanks a lot, man. This has been great. Thank, thank Brian Hood for, for singing your praises because it was like, oh, okay. I'll I thank Hoodie for lots of stuff. He took me to my first baseball game last week. I've never been to one before. You're kidding. I grew up in a practice room. I don't, you know, I don't know from sports. You grew up in the Bay Area and that was your first baseball game? Eh, baseball. 
I know. Well, I'm not a big sports fan either, but even I have been to A's and Giants games. Well, now I have, and I kind of, I want to go back. My wife's really excited that I'm taking a late in life interest in sports. She's like all for it. <laughs> well, on that note, we'll, we'll call it a day. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Jeremy Goody here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Really enjoyed going over to his studio and hanging out. Great guy. Great studio, too. We are out of time, and of course, it's time to say thanks to everybody. I want to thank, of course, Cliff and Chuck and Cole, my compadres who helped make this podcast possible. And I also want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. They make it possible, and you make it possible as well. I want to thank you. I really appreciate your time. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.